Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. In the last few weeks, a conga line of some of the world's largest companies have announced pay cuts for their CEOs and boards of directors. In Australia alone, $25 million in base pay for company directors and CEOs has been waived in what appears to either be a sign of solidarity or a sign that recovery is a long way off. But with feathers being ruffled on the top floor and COVID's role as the ultimate corporate disruptor, does waiving the CEO's salary give any hope to the rest of the workforce or is it the corporate canary in the coal mine? Joining us today is Vishy Narayaran, Chief Digital and Information Officer at PricewaterhouseCoopers Australia. Dr Anna Leong is a Senior Lecturer in the Accounting Discipline Group at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School. And Dr Samir Gunnam is also a lecturer in the Accounting Discipline Group at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School. Thank you all for joining us. Over the last few weeks and months, some of the world's marquee companies such as General Electric in the US, Marriott Hotels and some of our own homegrown talent like Qantas, Westpac and Maya have seen sweeping cuts to CEO and senior executive pay as shareholders and employees ask for a more top-down style of austerity as the world begins the long journey to normality again. So over $25 million in pay to CEOs and directors has been cut across a raft of Australian companies. Now, to many people, hearing CEOs of major companies willing to take a pay cut is a surprising act of solidarity with a workforce teetering on the edge of mass unemployment. But is there more to it? And indeed, how long will the solidarity last? Anna and Samir, you've been analysing these senior executive pay cuts for quite a while now. Just to start off the discussion, what are some of the general trends that you found? Samir and I, we have collected some data as to the firms who are cutting pay. And what we're finding at the moment is it's not a big proportions. The ones who take a pay cut, they appear in the news, but it's not a big proportion of firms where we're seeing executives taking a pay cut. At the moment, it's about 18% for the top 100 firms. And it's even lower if we move on to top 200, 300 or 400 firms. I think the rate is about 10% that we are seeing. And with CEOs taking a um, pay cut, we have to be clear that the cut is to their base pay mainly. So when employees are taking a a pay cut, that's to their total compensation. But when CEOs are taking a pay cut, generally what we're finding is it's only their base pay, which might not be a lot compared to what they would have received or they have received as compensation in the previous financial year. So it is a good thing, but I feel like it's not comparable to the sacrifices that lower level employees have made to help cut costs in their organisation. So do you think it's just the scale of the numbers uh, that we're talking that have made this news? I think one of the reasons why it could have picked up so much traction is that this is quite unprecedented. Um, We haven't seen often cases where CEOs cut their salary, right? Even 
during the global financial crisis or when you know companies are not performing all that well that doesn't usually happen so i think this is a relatively unique scenario and some of the ceos probably the minority did have a, a, a significant pay cuts and they would have been in the media quite a lot but i think as anna mentioned before the majority of the cuts are not that significant even when you talk about the dollar amounts yeah it's like a 20% base pay cut because they don't specify the base pay cut a 20% pay cut might be the equivalent of 1% total pay that they received last year like we don't know what their pay is for most firms at the moment pair that with what they took home last year it's actually not that much and to many ceo and senior executive pay cuts are seen almost as the canary in the coal mine for greater job losses in the future for the effective foot soldiers of the organization. So is there some credence to that thought that these voluntary pay cuts are maybe not as benevolent as we may think? So one thing we did notice with the data is that um, often when CEOs take a pay cut, that's associated with an announcement where they have also cut the jobs of many of their staff. So it is viewed as, okay, we're all in this together. I know you've lost 100% of your income, but I'm also bearing some of the costs as well. And one of the big questions in, in your research project on CEO pay cuts is whether these pay cuts are associated with a firm's specific negative media attention. Now, obviously, when we're speaking about the upper echelons of business, the Hain Royal Commission harks to mind the memories that CEOs are certainly not immune to an old-fashioned media witch hunt, and maybe there are lessons worth remembering for the business world from those experiences. So, Vichy, if I could just get your opinion on this, do you believe that it's important for executives, particularly in these major institutions, to show some solidarity with the rest of the workforce? So I guess I view this from two or three different lens, right? The first is there is a a current economic crisis um, that is at our doorstep or already we're in it. And how do you respond to that? And what is the role of um, the CEOs and the leadership in responding to that? And what are some of the choices that are in front of them in, in terms of um, uh, helping the businesses navigate that? So that's the number one uh, uh, issue that we're facing. The second, I think, is the business models themselves. And, and I guess with my background and role as the digital and information officer for PwC, um, for a long time, we've been looking at how do we replatform our business to be a bit more digital? And what does that actually mean? And we can unpick that in a second. Uh, and the third for me is the, um, is the absolute need to lead from the front and to be seen from, um, as leading from the front. So I agree with some of the comments made earlier, but I also think it's a little more than tokenism, right? I think there is a, there's a real need to understand uh, and to sort of have a crystal ball that um, uh, predicts the future of any business. And we talked about firms as lots of financial services organizations. Um, we've talked about the, the travel and, and media sectors in the past. So if you are leading one of these businesses, what does the next 6, 12, 24, 48-month outlook look like for those businesses? And what are the choices you need to make from an operating model, size of the workforce perspective, and also your role in contributing to that um, uh, economic model of the future, um, i.e. through pay cuts, through uh, salary reductions, et cetera. So I think of it more holistically like that. And I understand that the previous 
um, thread of the conversation. But for us, it's how do you navigate this in the future? If that makes sense. Do you think that it's important for those executives to buy in to the, the struggles of the rest of the workforce and show that they're also somewhat suffering themselves? Yeah, I, I guess for me, it the the answer to that question is a is a um, reflection on the times we live in today, right? So there is no, um, I guess, clear cut right or right uh, wrong answer. To me, one thing that is absolutely paramount right now is the authenticity of leadership. And in order for you to be an authentic leader, you need to demonstrate that you understand all aspects of the organization and the people, and and not just the you know your your customers or your stakeholders. You need to understand what your employees are going through. And the other thing I also would like uh, to remind constantly is a lot of the executives were once workers too, right? Uh, so they didn't sort of jump into the, they, they were not parachuted in as an executive. A lot of them went through the ranks. And so in most cases, you would hope that they remember the experiences and where they where they don't, I think it's really important for them to associate with the experiences of everyone in the organization, because that's how you can lead. You can't just lead through leading the top end of the organization, you have to lead um, the, all levels of the organization. So I think the answer is yes, you do need to empathize and you need to sort of um, uh, be in the trenches somewhat um, as the times call for it. And then the media uh, scrutiny is a sign of the times, right? The, with, with social media, with the range of any um, moves being scrutinized in 100 different angles, um, that comes with the territory and you just need to be able to respond to that. Quite a big feature of the research that Samir and Anna are doing, the looking at the difference in the conservative base pay of a CEO and then the other forms of remuneration. So I was going to ask, are these pay cuts offset by any other forms of remuneration that would essentially render these pay cuts obsolete? So I can start by answering the question, but I guess it'll be great to hear Samir and Anna's view. Mm. Uh, from from my perspective, again, it comes down to participating in the overall success of the business going forward, right? And I can talk about some uh, experiments we are running within our own firm to look at how we find alternative uh, remuneration opportunities for our people um, rather than the traditional remuneration opportunities. And by them benefiting from um, innovation and driving disruption in their own business model. So that's how we think about alternate revenue streams or, or income streams. Um, but ultimately, I think it's heading down the path of a success-based remuneration model, right? Not just an activity-based remuneration model. So it has to be based on outcome and success. And that's what executives um, should be rewarded on. And, and if you can um, create the organization of the future and shepherd it through this current environment, um, that largely predicates how an, an executive should be rewarded. Anna and Samir, do you have anything to add? Um, we don't have the specific answer to this question. So we're still collecting the data and we don't have that data available yet. So we know who has been taking the pay cut based on um, company announcement, but how their pay changes in other components of pay. So in terms of options, for instance, we don't know that yet. So that's something that we are very much interested in trying to investigate. But things that we've seen happening in, in some businesses and some happening in the US as well 
is when setting the options for the executives, it has been done in firms where they're using a lower price that would be easier to meet in the next financial year if the business was just to recover, to be at the same level as the previous um, year. We don't know the answer yet, but it might be easier for some executives to make up for the loss of their base pay in their option um, part of their compensation. And just in general, when you're talking about the pay structures for executives and directors, is it generally a rule that the base pay is quite conservative and that it is generally offset by other forms of remuneration like the options that you were mentioning? Well, one thing that we do notice is base pay is usually like the lowest, the lower part of the um, executive compensation. Of course, it differs from companies to companies, but you might have a CEO who's on a base pay of 2 million, but then the total pay could be 20 million, for instance. So the base pay might might be like a third of their total pay. I haven't looked at the data, but for many firms, their base pay might not be the main part of their total compensation. Are these senior executives getting to decide how much they're cutting their own pay? I think usually the this is this is likely to be a conversation between the board of directors and the CEO, right? So usually you have a remuneration committee on the board of directors who decides the compensation of the CEO and um, sometimes other executives. So all the not nowhere in the media it says who decides on the pay cuts, but most likely from prior research is probably will be the conversation between the CEO and the rest of the directors. And while pay cuts are certainly a sign of austerity, research suggests that boards and executives are at least likely to keep their jobs. There was a 2010 study by the Rock Centre for Corporate Governance at Stanford University that revealed that only 54% of boards were grooming a specific successor and 39% had no viable internal candidates who could immediately replace the CEO if the need arose. Now, Vichy was obviously speaking about earlier the fact that no CEO finds themselves one day sitting in a nice uh, corner office. They've usually worked their way up through either that specific institution or another one similar. So are the upper echelons of the business world efficient in their ability to adapt to travel? Um, I mean, I have looked at some of the research um, on succession policies and... You know, one of the big reasons why uh, so many companies do not have a potential successor is it's a very difficult conversation between the board and the CEO to actually say, okay, one day you're going to retire and we'll have to replace you. And, you know, we should start grooming someone uh, to replace you. Right. And some CEOs are potentially would be willing to do something like that. And for the other CEOs, that conversation could be very difficult and boards try to avoid this conversation as long as possible. Now, I know in uh, America, SEC, uh, which is basically similar to what we have in Australia to ASIC, uh, has been putting a lot of pressure on companies and boards to actually start adopting the succession policies. So it's not necessarily the question about you know whether the firms it takes time for firms to change and adapt to the current situation uh, but it has a lot to do with their individuals in the organization Vichy, if if we're talking about the CEO of the future or the board of directors of the future what are the certain things that businesses will be looking for for that 
next generation of leaders? I think the first um, question, if I can just go back to the earlier point on um, on the CEO um, succession, et cetera, right? Mm. So from, a, from our firm, as an example, we have a mandatory um, rotation after, after two terms. So a term of a CEO and executive is four years. And after, after two terms of eight years, um, essentially the CEO needs to move to a different role and then they, they, there's another CEO elected. So that's sort of the process we use um, within our own firm to, to ensure we get um, regeneration at, of the leadership. In terms of the specific, um, what are the, the skill sets? You know, COVID, if you look at the last four months, right? And a lot of businesses were sitting in boardrooms in late January looking at their uh, outlook towards the end of financial year 20 going into 21. I can almost with certainty tell you that no one really had the short view into the March to June period turning out like it has currently. And I think the three things that stood out for me, if I can just very quickly hit them, is number number one is the difference between agility and agile is a really important skill set from a leadership and a CEO. And a lot of people say they're um, they're sort of agile, i.e., they follow agile practices. But to me, agility is slightly different. It's the ability to make fairly quick decisions and understand the impact and and pivot on almost on a daily basis as lots of businesses were doing over the last three months. The second to me is the importance of digital and technology and under embracing. So a future CEO or a future leader absolutely needs to understand and have lived experience of the benefits of technology and digital, not an acquired experience, um, I think, in the next uh, five to 10 years. And the third for me is the importance of actually democratizing the workforce, if I can use that term. And what I mean by that is when it comes to digital and technology, um, the best ideas don't always come from the top. Um, they can come from anywhere in the organization. So how do you create an operating model in your business that can take advantage of, of that trend and actually catapult your business? And you'll just look at the last three to four months, businesses that have navigated the situation well uh, were somewhat set up or well set up uh, for a digital business model. And those that weren't had to completely repivot and, and they suffered quite extensively. So, so to me, those are key skill sets, the agility uh, piece, the, the ability to truly be digital and experience digital and to make sure that you're not sort of all relying on top-down decision-making. You can democratize ideas, I think are going to be three important skill sets of the future. Deloitte Australia has laid off 7% of its 10,000 strong domestic workforce as it looks to obviously protect the business amidst those plummeting revenue streams. Now, it's a very interesting time to be involved in the auditing business and indeed intimately involved with the recovery process for a global institution like PwC. So the biggest message across the boards and senior executives the country over is creating a sustainable model for the future. But as we've actually spoken about previously, Vichy, do we assume incorrectly that this future, this recovery, will look anything like the business world we left before COVID-19? It's a a really good question, Max. And I think um, the term I've been using internally and and in conversations with clients and others is we can't take an old plan and apply it to the new reality. We actually need a new plan for the new reality. And the new reality looks quite different based on initial um, assessment to the, the old reality. So small things like the number of people that are going to be in this thing called the workplace permanently from from five days a week or six days a week, depending on where you work. The fact that workplaces are 
the only place you do work. And there is this um, divide between uh, working remotely and workplaces. The, the fact that you you absolutely need to to have sort of physical infrastructure to deliver some of these capabilities. So there's a lot of these things that businesses for a long time have spent a lot of time and money in, which I think really need to have a rethink going forward. So I would say that that's the, that's the first starting point. The second to me is, again, back to, you talked about roles being uh, made um, redundant or, or downsizing the workforce. For me, I think that roles are open to to change but people are not right people can be upskilled and we can actually protect people rather than protecting jobs and that's the approach i think we tend to take is trying to get more people upskilled and and be part of the future economy and so when this new reality is created and the recovery happens are we well positioned to do that? That is the approach that a lot of businesses are taking, not just us. And in doing that, you do have to make some tough choices from time to time. But you do you make choices for for the majority and for the future of the business. And that's where I, I think part of what we've discussed is a new plan for, for what the new reality looks like. Bringing your people along and making sure you focus on upskilling them is is really our approach towards pre- preparing for the future. Mm. And within the Deloitte model, the consulting and advisory components of the businesses were the most hard hit of all the different departments. So will the big four accountancy firms potentially be following that lead in the future, cutting weight in advisory and consultancy positions and streamlining that business model? Yeah, look, I can't comment on on um, others in the market, right? Um, I, I can certainly comment from a, from a PwC standpoint. We continue to look at our operating model almost every sort of three months. Uh, and this is not something that we do just during the, the COVID current situation. And I think in general, we're looking at where there's demand because we are a demand-led, a client-led organization. And where there's demand, that's where we uh, reorganize and put a lot of our skill sets. And where um, there is no demand, we look at how do we retrain some of that capabilities. And, and in, the, in the small and the rare event we can't, then we have to make some choices in terms of downsizing. That's the way we, we operate and we continue to operate. I think what this um, market has has created is the need to act more decisively rather than to hope things change and things get better. Um, I think you know there's a lot of uh, commentary that says hope is not a strategy, um, and for us it's really about and that goes back to the agility that I, that I spoke about is the ability to make some decisions and protect the 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 organization and the people. Um, the majority of the people for the future, and then um, go hard at at sort of the business model of the future. That's the approach we're taking anyway. But I, as I said, I can't comment on some of the other businesses and their strategies. Anna and Samir, do you have anything to add to that? Do you think that traditional structure of a board of directors, a CEO, do you think that may in any way change? Or do you think even the, the role of a CEO and boards of directors may change after COVID? With research, uh, at the current stage, it is very hard to say because, I mean, we've been in COVID, COVID for approximately three months now, and we do not observe much changes in terms of the board or, you know, we don't observe many CEO turnovers. So it is, and this is just pure speculation here, but from my point of view, it is unlikely that we will see uh, the changes in the board structures or the role of the board of the CEO or CEO, it is likely to continue the way it is. However, we do observe that after the big events, such as, let's say, something like GFC, regulators do find a lot of 
uh, problems within the economy and within the structures of the firms and, you know, certain corporate governance changes that might need to occur. So it is possible that in, it is possible that COVID might trigger certain trends that we were not aware originally, and it might trigger certain failures uh, potentially due to, you know, not having access to capital or not having enough cash in the business which might require certain, you know, and as a result, certain regulation might be introduced to make sure that the companies are less risky. But it is not clear at all whether the any of the corporate governance changes would occur in any in in, in near future. But I 100% agree with what Lisha said. There might be a lot of changes, operational changes within the companies. We might be entering the new era in terms of how companies operate. And as Lisha said, it is not clear whether we need the space to operate. I mean, there is a firms definitely observe that there is a lot of opportunities to cut costs, right? You know, either through renting the physical space where people need to work or even travel space, sorry, um, opportunities to travel. Now we can, can communicate, you know, through Zoom, obviously. So it is very likely that firms will identify ways to cut costs and they will probably continue doing that in future. And it's funny that we bring up Zoom because for most of April and May of this year, the country's major cities were effectively ghost towns as a lockdown came into effect and those who could worked from home. Now, for companies like Zoom, it's been an absolute windfall. And since last December, Zoom's user base has grown from less than 10 million daily meeting participants to over 300 million as of late April. So it's clear that this has been a big break for companies like Zoom. So it's a sign that those traditional business models and the age-old water cooler conversation as we know it may be now as archaic as the printing press, particularly Vichy. Where do you see the big digital revolution taking place in the business world? Yeah, uh, I think the, the number one thing is a lot of these tools, as you've rightly pointed out, already existed in organizations. Uh, and they were almost seen as a support, supporting capabilities or supporting infrastructure rather than this is how we engage as a starting point and then we have other mechanisms that might support. So I think that is fundamentally being changed and challenged currently. And just in Zoom, I was chatting to someone last week who actually is in a startup and uh, he has a lot of engagements with uh, venture capitalists, with investors in, in, the, in the U.S. and other places. And he gave me a really interesting insight on Zoom. He's saying the use of backgrounds, the strategic use of backgrounds in Zoom, allow you to set the scene for the type of engagement that you're going to have. So, for example, he's created a virtual coffee shop background in Zoom when he's trying to have a virtual coffee. Or he's got the, the Bay Bridge in his background as he is um, engaging with venture capitalists in the in the Bay Area in in San Francisco, so he says that it's interesting innovation where it's almost a micro innovation. That is, yes, everyone understands Zoom, but even within Zoom, can you do things differently to actually set the scene, to have those as much engagement and connectivity? Now, it absolutely does not replace face-to-face interaction in many cases, but how do you make uh, innovate with what you have? It's the Zoom innovation in the video conferencing it's giving people access to the tools and the capabilities and then letting them innovate and be rewarded for it uh, uh, through the marketplace well there we go what will become of the boardroom will it continue to exist or will it simply become just another background to a zoom call 
And for those lucky few who occupy it, what does the waving of pay show about the confidence of those who run Australia's largest companies? We've said it before on Think Business Futures, and we'll say it again. Only time will tell. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to tell your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. I'll see you again next week.